All right, we're going to take a quick break from our verse-by-verse study through the book of the Revelation, and we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55 this morning. So I invite you to join with me. Turn to Isaiah 55 in your Bible or on your uh, Bible app on your device so we can see what the Lord says to us. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Stay thirsty, my friends, was the slogan of who? Who, who, who's the person that said it? The most interesting man in the world. I guess he wasn't that interesting. <laughs> Stay thirsty, my friends, was the slogan of the most interesting man in the world. He was seen in a series of ads that ran for 12 years on television. The agency behind the campaign said their strategy was to create a character who comes across in the way the audience hopes to be in the future. The ads proved successful, boosting sales for Dos Equis every year that it ran and sparking many an internet meme. The slogan, Stay Thirsty, is pitched to us, the viewer, in these sort of grandiose terms that you should fill your life with all sorts of experiences and, of course, drink a bunch of Dos Equis along the way. That's going to help, no doubt. In reality, it's kind of an interesting it's kind of an interesting pulling back of the curtain on, on the company because it reveals the company's practical hope that you, the consumer, really would stay thirsty forever and keep buying their beverage and never have your thirst slaked. Thirst is a universal craving. It's a basic and critical requirement that must be addressed. It's the signal within every creature that there is a lack and a need. And once you feel thirsty, that's the body telling you, hey, you're on the clock. I have a requirement that must be addressed. And you have to deal with this essential concern before a problem uh, is, 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 takes over. In the Bible, the need for salvation is compared to thirst multiple times. We need a spiritual life with God as much as the body needs water. King David said, my soul thirsts. For God. The sons of Korah said, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Jesus Christ told a Samaritan woman, if you drink from this well, you are going to thirst again. But ask of me and I'll give you eternal life so that you'll never thirst again. In the wilderness wanderings, the children of Israel cried out to Moses because of their great thirst. And God sent them water from a rock. While that story really happened historically, Paul goes on in the New Testament to explain that it was also a beautiful picture of how that rock was Christ whose living water will, be, will come to us and save and sustain and satisfy. In Isaiah 55, we have another famous passage that can, compares salvation to the quenching of thirst. In it, God speaks to anyone who will listen. Now, originally, this message was addressed to the Jews around the time of the Babylonian captivity, but its scope goes far beyond that immediate group. We'll see that in the passage itself, but students of the New Testament will recall that Jesus Christ took this very text and applied it to himself, revealed himself in it, addressing it to everyone everywhere. In this message, what does God have to say? We'll find it is urgent, but very tender. It is both a warning and an invitation. It shows us that God is immeasurably compassionate. He's mighty to save and that he is personally concerned for your life and for your future. So we begin in verse one and we read this. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. You without silver, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Your translation may start the chapter with the phrase ho or a similar exclamation. From the beginning, 
we should sense God's urgency here. This is no casual text message, what's up, right? He's, he's, he's urgent. He's calling out. He's exclaiming to anyone who will listen. Bible dictionaries will tell us that the word used here at the beginning is a signal expressing woe. There's danger. There's concern. But it's also an exclamation filled with sympathy and pity. Right away, we sense that God sees a danger where we might not. In this first verse, he calls out to us four times. Come, 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 come. Who? Well, everyone who is thirsty. And it's helpful and significant that he uses thirst as the signal. Why not everyone who's sad? Well, not everyone is sad. How about everyone who's defeated? Not everyone was defeated. It's because everyone gets thirsty. While you may not feel it at the moment, at least in your heart of hearts, the fact of the matter is that God has placed eternity in the heart of every human being so that we will thirst for him. As we'll see in the coming verses, you may have taken a gulp of some other beverage, some other well, some other source that's trying to address that spiritual thirst. And maybe you don't feel it at this very moment as an unbeliever, but the need for salvation is like the need for water. It's universal. It affects every single person on earth. God invites anyone here to come and receive a draft from he who is the source and the keeper of life-giving water. And he establishes that this is not something you can buy. You can't earn it. You can't have it owed to you. You can't pay for it. You can't trade for it. It's a completely free gift. And what a great message we see here. You don't have any money? No problem. You do have money? Doesn't matter. This is a cost-free offer. Have you been getting those no-cost solar brochures on your door? We've been getting a couple of them. They've been going around the neighborhood. Now, in some of those programs, there's a catch, right? Either the panels aren't really yours or there's some hidden fee tucked away in the agreement. Listen, that's not the kind of offer God makes when it comes to salvation. No, he looks out on humanity with love and compassion, and he says, they're thirsty. They're in great need. They need to be saved from death and saved from their mistakes They need to be saved from themselves. And God says, I have the one thing that will fix that spiritual thirst so that they'll never thirst again. Once and for all, I can take care of that. And then he offers it to us freely. The only requirement is a willing heart. Who will come? And notice, not only receive the water that he's offering, but he throws in wine and milk there as well. Water, milk, and wine. These in general terms speak to us of survival, of sustenance, and of satisfaction. You see, God's plan isn't just to save you from hell. That would be good enough, right? If, you were, if you've ever had CPR performed on you, it's good enough that the rescue uh, breather or the, you know, the first responder performs CPR on you. That's quite a gift. But when God comes along and sees our desperate need for salvation, he doesn't just do the CPR thing and then say, okay, you're good, I'll, I'll see you at the end of your life. If you've ever taken a CPR class, I have. You, you learn the rescue breathing and the chest compressions and everything. They don't then say, okay, now we're going to teach you how to give this person you've been helping a balanced diet and a happy life and fulfillment for the rest of their days. You don't do that. As soon as you've done the Heimlich and cleared the hot dog out, or as soon as you finish the chest compressions, you're done. You say, have a nice life. You're welcome, right? But that's not what the Lord does. Not at all. God is mindful not only of saving us from eternal death and saving us from hell, but he says, hey, I'm also mindful of bringing you strength and satisfaction and savor in this life as well. 
He has a comprehensive plan for our lives on both sides of eternity. Verse two says this, why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. God is our creator. He's the great physician. He's also our heavenly father. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts and our minds. He knows our deepest needs and he knows what will happen if he doesn't rescue us. That omnipotent knowledge paired with his endless extravagant generosity begs this question that he's asking here in verse two. He comes to humankind and he sees our condition. He sees what we're doing and how we're going the wrong way and how we are in such desperate need of help. And he says here, oh man, I want to address the deepest needs and problems that you have for now and for the next life. And I'm going to give it all to you for free. So why are you going in this other direction? Why are you going these other ways to try to find fulfillment and purpose and deliverance? If you've had parents of young children, you've probably experienced this when your kids get old enough to have an allowance or maybe earn some chore money or something like that. They've got that little $5 bill, right? And they say, you know, mom and dad, will you take us to the store? Well, let's go to the dollar store. Let's go wherever. And they say, I want to buy this. And you're just like, oh, it's garbage. You spent all that time doing all that work and now you want to literally buy trash. And you know it's not going to work. You know it's going to break as soon as they open it out of the package. Oh, this is what I want. And sometimes you say, well, why don't you get this over here? This will actually last. This will actually give you some enjoyment. This won't immediately just fall apart when you try to enjoy it. And so, you know, some of you have maybe experienced that. Now, magnify that to an infinite degree. The Lord looks down all the way into the space between our soul and our spirit. He sees all of our days. He's known us from before the foundation of the earth. He knows the beginning from the end and all these different things. And he sees what human beings are doing. And he says, I'll give it all to you for free. I want to give you survival and satisfaction and savor and strength. I want to give you all of these things for free. But you're going to have to come to me. You're going to have to listen. You're going to have to receive my supply and my stores, and you are not going to find those other things in these other places. You know, when you're physically thirsty, you respond by drinking something. That's the normal thing to do. But God points out here that we humans so often try to satisfy spiritual thirst with things that are never going to satiate us, things that are never going to work. You know, our souls hurt, so we seek out physical pleasure or earthly accomplishments or some other means to distract ourselves. Our hearts feel empty, so we think, well, we'll buy material objects. That's what the people out in the world are doing, trying to quench that longing within. But it's it's a silly thing when we think about what's really going on. That's like being physically thirsty and saying, well, I'm really thirsty. I'll do a bunch of jumping jacks, and that'll help my thirst. Or, man, I'm really thirsty. I'm going to put on some new shoes, and that'll fix my thirst. That's a silly thing if, on the physical level, but this is what unbelievers are doing on the spiritual level. As God calls out to them again and again and again, and yet we see men and women all over the earth going their own way and saying, well, maybe if I accomplish this, or maybe if I do that, or maybe if I buy this, or maybe if I find that person, all the while the God who has all the supply in the world is ready to give it freely at no cost. Sometimes, People try to fix their spiritual thirst by going to things which seem spiritual, but are not in line with the revealed word of God, the true word of God. Things like man's philosophies and world religions. 
These are things that try to mimic what God has freely offered, but they can't fill the heart. They can't accomplish what they set out to do. It's sort of like Dos Equis. If you're thirsty, drinking beer is not going to help you, just scientifically, because alcohol is a diuretic, right? Alcohol, when you drink it, causes the body to remove fluids from itself. And so it's just, I find this whole slogan of stay thirsty very ironic. I guess, you know, it's like stay thirsty and now drink our beer and you're going to be even more thirsty because these chemicals are telling your body to shed water out of the system. And so that's kind of like what world religions are doing to people. They have these spiritual need, this spiritual emptiness. And so they go to something that looks spiritual, but the more they drink in, the less they are able to fill that void inside. Meanwhile, the Lord God comes to us and says, I will show you and give you the choicest of foods. Not only does God's salvation fix us, it's a life full of goodness and enjoyment. It is such a great, complete, comprehensive, blessed package. Listen, I know on the physical level that I should eat a bunch of kale and Brussels sprouts and a bunch less sugar, right? I know that that would be better on some level for me, but that would be all fixed with no enjoyment, right? That's that's a life not worth living, if you ask me. (laughs) But sometimes we think, well, obeying the God of the Bible, I just have to, you know, just eat my kale three times a day, all day, every day. God is you know, upset with human beings. And so I just have to grin and bear it. And, you know, hopefully I'll make it to heaven. That's not the way God has revealed himself in the word. That's not the way God has set up a relationship with him. Look at what he's talking about, even in this passage, not to mention countless others throughout both testaments. God comes and he brings salvation, that thing we really need, right? But he also, in addition to survival, he brings strength and satisfaction and savor. This is a God who loves when his people are full of joy and rejoicing. He gives it. He says, I want to fill your heart up with joy and rejoicing. Psalm 1611 says this, you, God, reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And so in verse two here of our text, in addition to urgency and generosity, we see God's great tenderness. He sees how people are wasting their efforts and their resources and their lives. And he says, don't do that. Come with me and delight yourself in fatness. Maybe your translation uses that term. This idea that true Christianity, true spirituality requires constant self-affliction or asceticism, that's not how God depicts his offer to us. We kind of all have this idea tucked away in our human hearts that if I was actually spiritual, it wouldn't be very enjoyable. It would probably feel bad most of the time. This is why in the Middle Ages, people were whipping themselves and doing weird things to themselves because obviously God doesn't actually want me to be happy or to enjoy my relationship with him. The Puritans, for example, had this idea. They had a lot of good ideas, but they had some pretty bad ideas too. They had this idea that you can't wear bright colors because somehow that dishonors God. So you can wear black and brown and that's it. I remember, you know, if you've gone through the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, there's one section that has stuck with me for some reason. And, and uh, the girls get in trouble because they were playing on Sunday, which is a big no-no. And so Pa Ingalls sits them down and explains to them what his upbringing was like and how you know they're lucky that they get to even talk on Sunday because when he was being brought up, Sunday was the Lord's day. And so you had to walk to church in silence. 
You couldn't laugh all day. You couldn't talk all day. You would go to church for a few hours, come home, no playing, no anything fun like that. And you would just sit in silence or you could read the good book and that's it. And that if you enjoyed yourself on Sunday, it was an affront to God. And he tells them a story about how then their dad had to go do something. And so they took a sled down a hill one time and then they were beaten for it. That's what God wants on his day. He wants, he wants the Lord's day to be the worst day of the week. Of course not. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not, that's not abundant joy. That's not rejoicing. That's not, oh, how happy is the one who goes the way of the Lord. The Lord wants a, a great deal of satisfaction and fulfillment for us. Verse three says this, pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David. I'm sure all of us have passed by a salesman without giving any attention to them, whether it's the guy handing out flyers on the street corner or that Girl Scout table outside the grocery store. We catch a glimpse and just pick up our pace and walk on by. Sadly, that's the way many unbelievers respond to the message of the gospel. And here, in addition to this generous offer God is making, the lavish promises, the great generosity, God makes himself very clear now. He says, listen, pay attention and come to me. If you don't, you're going to die. That's the other part of the gospel that is so essential. Not only that God is gracious and God is love and God wants to forgive you of your sins and that, and that it's all a free gift made possible by the work of Jesus Christ. But if you don't receive this, you are going to die. And that is the truth. You see, that spiritual thirst, that emptiness within our hearts that verse one is talking about, it is a symptom of sin. The Bible explains that all have sinned and that the wages of sin is death. Meanwhile, sin separates us from God. But God has made the way to reconcile us to himself so that he can give us everlasting life now and forever. And he does so through unbreakable covenant promises. Notice that word covenant. God offers you a choice in this thing. It's an agreement that he wants to make with you. It's not like in the Avengers movie where some super powerful being snaps their fingers and either you die or you don't die, right? Whether it's Iron Man or whether it's Thanos, all the other people in the cosmos and on earth, they had nothing to do with any of it. They either turned to dust or they just came back from being dust. It wasn't an agreement that they made with anything, but that's not the way that God is talking about this thing. He keeps an open invitation, but here we see it's up to you whether you will agree to receive what God wants to freely give you. He calls you to come over and over again. He asks you to listen. On our part, there's a choice, a choice in the mind, a choice in the heart, whether we will move towards God or not. To ignore God's call is to make the choice to die eternally. But there's no need for that because a suffering servant came to earth and willingly submitted to death himself so that now we can live. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 is all about. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant. That's what the incarnation of Jesus was for in this first century AD. He came, lived a perfect sinless life so he could take our place to pay our debt and then credit to us all of his richness if we're willing to receive him. And even though the Jews in the exile period shortly after this message from Isaiah was delivered would be thinking, well, we're in captivity now. The line of David is ended the Gospels reveal that Jesus Christ is not only a descendant of David, he is the son of David prophesied 
who will sit on the throne for, of God forever and ever. God will keep his unstoppable promises. God will keep all of his covenants and they cannot be stopped. Verse four says, since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. So you will summon a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you will run to you for the Lord, your God, even the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. Commentators disagree over whether these verses refer solely to Jesus or if they also speak of Israel, the nation. But here's what we can see if we step back a little. First, God's compassionate love is not just for the individual or even a select number of people. His plan, his big goal is to redeem all nations everywhere. And while today the nations of the world live in rebellion against God, there is a time coming when all will be made right. The nations will be healed and God will be known and worshiped worldwide. Every knee will bow. Instead of rejecting the Lord and raging at him, men will run to him and to his people. Looking forward to that time in what we call the millennial kingdom, Zechariah writes this, Zechariah 8, 23. In those days, 10 men from nations of every language will grab the robe of a Jewish man tightly urging, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Verse five of our text pulls back the curtain even a little bit more. We've seen the quenching of thirst, the saving from death, the enjoyment of God's provision. But here we additionally see God's intent to glorify his people. He will complete his promises by supplying for us a perfect resurrection body, by sharing his kingdom with us and allowing us to be meaningful participants in its administration. He will fill us with joy and make us like his son. We will be perfected once and for all. That is his covenant promise for us who believe. Verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. A person might find themselves thinking, well, these promises sound pretty good. I've got a lot of other things I wanna do. This happened a lot when Jesus was on earth in his incarnation. He would come to people and he would call them. He would say, hey, follow me. And a lot of them did. And then some of them said, it sounds good. I do have some other things going on here. Can I follow you later? And so perhaps if you're not a believer here this morning, you're thinking, well, since this invitation from God is an open invitation and it's been open for thousands of years, what's the hurry? Perhaps you're thinking, I don't feel so thirsty in my heart anyway. I must be okay. In that case, if that's you, God's telling you two things. First, you are dying. You may not realize it, but it's true. You know, when people are dying of thirst, studies show that before the end, they're Uh, is a mild amount of euphoria that sets in. It's kind of a helpful thing your body does since it realizes, ooh, we're about to die. Let's make them happy right here at the end. And they would say, I'm doing well. And a doctor would say, yeah, you're, you're moments away from death. We have to deal with this, even if you don't think we have to deal with it. So Jesus, God is speaking to you through this text saying, hey, you are dying. And the second thing he would say is do something about it right now. The apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. It is true, a God that's this generous uh, will still be generous in 10 years, assuming he waits to come back. Jesus is coming back one day to wrap up human history and usher in his kingdom. But let's assume he's not gonna come back anytime soon, even though we know that his return is imminent. It can happen at any moment. But, well, maybe in 10 years from now, I'll be ready. I'll have lived my life. I'll have been able to do the things that I want to do. And then this generous God will receive me. That's true. He will still be generous in 10 years. But the more important question is this. Will you be alive in 10 years? Are you going to be alive tomorrow? You can't answer that. You really can't. 
The choice to come to the Lord must be decided in this life. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man once to die and after this comes judgment. No second chance, no time heists, no purgatory. None of that is biblical. It's all a made up tradition of man to try to forestall this moment of decision that each one of us need to make. Those who refuse to answer the call of God, those who refuse to come into this glorious feast of salvation will be thrown into outer darkness forever and ever. Not because that's what God wants, but it's because you would not answer when he called. If you've not responded to God's invitation, there will come a point where it is too late for you. Many of Jesus's parables deal with this very thing. The good news is that you don't have to accomplish some great feat to prove you want salvation. Remember, you who have no money, that's fine. This is an offer without cost because the price has already been paid by Jesus Christ. So you don't have to do some great act or some great feat to prove that you want to be saved. It's simple. What does it say in verse six? Seek and call. That's what the Lord wants. The Bible promises that if you seek God, you will find him. And it promises that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's laid out for us very simply. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the deal. Because God has accomplished everything to make it possible. And he has sent you the message of the gospel so that you can hear it and make the choice whether you will believe and receive or not. Verse seven says, let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. Wait a minute. Is God suddenly changing the terms and conditions? No. To answer the Lord and to go to him and drink of his everlasting life means you change directions. That's what repentance means. It means you're facing headed one way and you hear God call and you realize you need to turn around and go toward him instead. You change directions. If you're not a believer, you are heading down one road in life. It's your own road that you've set before yourself. And now you hear his call and you have to make the choice whether you're going to turn around and go his way or not. God's way leads away from evil and selfishness and sin. And so to To believe God means to abandon your way and your iniquity. You see, when we go our own way, we invariably reach the destinations of death and judgment. That's what the Psalms and the Proverbs explain to us. God sees this calamity and he gives us this warning so that we will turn back and turn toward him and be saved. We need a new way, new thoughts, a new heart. And they're all provided by Jesus Christ along with the free forgiveness of everything wrong we've ever done. But like a drink of water, this forgiveness must be accepted and received in order to be of any use to us. If you've ever been to a marathon or seen footage of a marathon, no doubt you've seen a bunch of runners running through a crowd and on the sidelines, a lot of people holding out little cups of water, right? And you'll see a lot of those cups just get passed by. Because in that moment, the runners aren't thirsty or they got a drink before. But we see them passing by that water, right? We understand that image. They're making a choice whether they're going to take that cup or not as they go on their way. But let me give you a more chilling example, especially for those of you who may not believe in Jesus Christ for salvation here today. In 2007, Dave Bouchow joined a hiking expedition with 11 other people in the Utah desert. He paid over $3,000 for the course It was being led by expert guides. The adventure was designed to test physical and mental toughness. 
Dave signed a waiver acknowledging that the trip could lead to serious injury or death. On day two of the journey, after 10 hours without a drink of water in the 100 degree heat, Dave dropped dead less than 100 yards from their goal. Their goal was a cave with a pool of water in it. But here's what makes it so much worse. The guides with him had water that he could have taken a drink of at any point. But everybody wanted to do it on their own and show I can do it. I can be tough enough. I can make it to the end under my own strength. And the result was a completely avoidable tragedy. Dave Bouchelle lost his life for no reason because he wouldn't take a drink of, of water that was right there readily available. Listen, if you're not a believer here today, there's no need to stay thirsty, my friends. That's the last thing God wants for you. The God of the universe wants to rescue you from hell and rescue you from sin and rescue you from wasting your life. You cannot make it on your own without his intervention. You cannot find what you need anywhere other than Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we've seen today, he is the leader and commander, the coming king who is going to rule from his throne forever and ever. He is full of compassion and generosity and gracious love. Still, he does have these requirements. You must listen. You must believe. You must turn toward him, forsaking your sin and the path that you've made for yourself and instead acknowledge that he is the Lord, he is God, he is the provider of salvation and sustenance and satisfaction and strength and true savor in this life. You can do it right now in the quiet of your heart, calling out to him in belief, asking him to save you and he will do it. And like God did in these verses, we urge you to do it today because today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Listen so that you will live. Now, what about those of us who are already born again here today? We've already believed. We've already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I would imagine that includes most of us listening this morning. Much of what we've heard today not only encourages us to see the tender, generous, beautiful heart of God for all of his people, but even though it's geared towards the lost in in majority, is there something for us to apply? Of course there is. I would offer us from this text a reminder and a reality. First, the reminder there in verse seven, we see that phrase return to the Lord and in verse four that he's our leader and commander. And we're reminded by these images that the Lord is our shepherd and we are the sheep of his hand, that we're to stay under his leadership, under his command and in his presence. As we go through life, we're to follow after his leading. We didn't just go to him for that one moment to say, okay, now I'm saved and then I'll see you when I see you and hopefully everything will work out. The Lord says, no, I want you to come in and feast with me and now you're part of my household. You're gonna stay with me. You're part of my flock. I'm gonna be your good shepherd forever and ever. Stay with me. Don't don't go astray, but stay returned to me and in my presence. And so we're to... Go through life following after his leading, listening to him and enjoying his rules over our life continually. We're to trust him and remain faithfully in the fold of his gracious boundaries, allowing him to set the course of our lives day by day. You know, before you were saved, your navigation was completely wrong, right? About making decisions and your, your goal in life. And we, we understand from the Bible that, oh yeah, I was, I was going the wrong way. And then finally... I receive salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, our human navigation is still wrong, 
We need the mind of Christ. We need the heart of God. We need the direction of the Holy Spirit. We need the instruction of the word of God to navigate our lives and to show us where to go and what to do and how to make decisions and how to interact with people. We still need his leading for our perspective and our reactions and all of these different things. We need the Lord to continually direct us by his word and his Holy Spirit so that we can keep laying hold of all that he wants for us. Second, for us, the reality. Jesus speaking to that Samaritan woman about her thirst in the book of John, her need for salvation. He explained that when a person answers the invitation to come and drink, then they are not only saved and satisfied, they are transformed. He said, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Meaning that you and I are not only recipients of God's grace, we then become points of supply for other people who are thirsty. As the body of Christ, we are meant to flow through the world, bringing this salvation with us wherever we go. We go through the world, joining the chorus of God, calling the lost to salvation. And as we go, we supply grace and help and hope to the people around us who are so desperately thirsty. And so if you're a Christian here today, be a guide that gives water to the thirsty and helps them reach the end goal and show the world around you what God has given to you. Not just a bunch of kale that you have to choke down all the time, but what has God given to us? Salvation, sustenance, satisfaction, the savor of everlasting life. And it's all freely available to anyone who will come for a drink. Let's pray.